Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, part three of Professor Michael O'Rourke's five-part series, The Nows and Thens of Queer Theory. This online and in-residence seminar was organised by the Global Centre for Advanced Studies in association with UCD Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities and UCD Humanities Institute. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this podcast, part three, Veer Theory. Welcome to uh, lecture number three on this course, The Nows and Thens of Queer Theory. And uh, today's lecture is called Veer Theory. And uh, I want to ask what veer theory might be. Can one be a veer theorist? Uh, who's a veerer? What's a veerer? Um, what might a veer theory look like? So if we return to the three epigraphs which I um, used to describe the course, the first one was from Judith Butler. And it was, if the term queer is to be a site of collective contestation, the point of departure for a set of historical reflections and future imaginings, it will have to remain that which is in the present, never fully owned, but always and only redeployed, twisted, queered from a prior usage and in the direction of urgent and expanding political purpose. Okay, so what I want to place emphasis on there or underscore are point of departure. So queer is a point of departure. So uh, it departs from somewhere and then it is redeployed, twisted, which is a veer word, queered, which if it's synonymous with twisted and redeployment is also a veer word. And then when it's redeployed, twisted and queered, it's in the direction of urgent and expanding political purpose. So it's setting off and then veering away. And the second epigraph that I used was from David Halperin's book, Saint Foucault. He said, queer does not designate a class of already objectified pathologies or perversions. Rather, it describes a horizon of possibility whose precise extent and heterogeneous scope cannot in principle be delimited in advance. So again, I want to underscore, obviously perversion shares something with veering, which I'll develop as I go along. But then he's describing queerness as a horizon of possibility. So it's, it's this same expansive uh, scope uh, that Butler is talking about, but you can't delimit it in advance. So there's something which is uh, unlimitable about queerness. So it gives it this potential to veer in that space which is opened up to it. Then the third epigraph I used was, utopic in its negativity, queer theory curves endlessly towards a realization that its realization remains impossible. And that's from Lee Edelman's essay, Queer Theory on Stating Desire. So the emphasis I want to uh, make there is upon the word curves. So queer theory or queerness curves endlessly. So it's, uh, it's asymptotic. 
it's, it's a line which goes off, veers. Uh, so queering or veering uh, would be uh, some sort of a temporal stutter. Um, it's the redeployment of an old word um, which was a slur but has been queered or veered from its previous or prior usage. Uh, it's what Derrida would call a paleonym. Paleo meaning old and nim meaning name, but it's, it's, a, it's a new name for an old word. Um, and the emphasis in those three epigraphs is on temporality. And the way that queer veers temporally is that uh, it, its gravitational pull is not towards the past or towards uh, the future. Uh, or, no, sorry, it's not towards the past or stuck in the present. It's always uh, open to the future. So it's, it's not, in a sense, its center of gravity is, is never pulled back. It's always open. Um, so there's always a sort of temporal delay or a temporal drag. Um, so that's one way we might see queer as um, veering, is temporally. Uh, then as a sort of posture, queer is, uh, it's awkward, uh, or it's, it makes for awkwardness. It's unruly, um, it's slanted, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more about uh, what I mean by slanted. Uh, it's, it's delayed. So there's something temporally and spatially intemperate about it. Um, so it's a deformation or a perversion or a malformation of temporally sequential uh, time. So it's always in the future anterior. It's the what will have been uh, or it's posterior. Uh, it's either too early or it's too late. Um, so it's, it, it inhabits this kind of quirky, spooky uh, temporality. One other thing is that queer has a sort of prepositional quality, which I'll come back to again and again as I go on. Um, it's identities and practices drive or they drift away from being perpetually relational. Identities and practices are always shifting. They're always relational rather than teleological. Um, it's Foucault who uses this word slantwise to describe the way that, um, queer identities and practices or sexualities uh, operate. Um, and for Eve Sedgwick, queer positions always lie across um, the hegemonic or the monolithic. Um, and for Judith Butler, they always position themselves beside or alongside those sort of social um, or sexual hegemonic planes or normative planes. So you can see how it's prepositional, the, the across, the beside, the alongside. Um, and these prepositions are these critical modes that um, queerness uh, or queer um, positions induce, uh, they find themselves to be always inevitably still shifting. Um, 
So there's always a need to search for new prepositions. Uh, so if Sedgwick emphasizes in her early work this idea of the across, the transversal, uh, in her later work she's talking more about the around. Uh, so she, she uh, tweaks her idea of the performative and she starts talking about the peri-performative, uh, which is, which is a, a kind of utterance which crowds around or is in the neighborhood uh, of the performative. But it, again, it's a new position or a new vocabulary or a new critical grammar that she's searching for. Um, and this sort of restlessness around the sort of grammars of um, queerness is in order to creatively resist any sort of de delimiting um, teleological um, narratives. Um, as David Halpern says in his epigraph, you cannot delimit it in advance. Okay, so there's no origin and there's no telos, which allows this possibility for veering. Uh, this is from Eve Sedgwick. It's a, it's a quite early definition uh, or a non-definition of queers from 1993. She says that queer expands the term along dimensions that cannot be reduced to gender and sexuality at all, the ways that race, ethnicity, and post-coloniality crisscross with these and other identity-constituting and identity-fracturing discourses. So you've got crisscrossing there and uh, moving along dimensions which are undelimitable or irreducible. So queer, this is again Sedgwick, refers to a politics that values the ways in which meanings and institutions can be at loose ends with each other. Now, I want to emphasize this idea of being at loose ends because um, this is, again is what allows for veering uh, when the end is loose or when it's, the end is frayed. It opens up a space where one can uh, open out onto the future or the unanticipatable. Um, Sedgwick goes on, she says that uh, queer is crossing all kinds of boundaries rather than reinforcing them. So there's this emphasis both on the across and crossing in early Sedgwick. And here's another quote where she's underscoring the across. She says, a lot of queer writing tends towards across formulations, across genders, across sexualities, across genres, across perversions. The concept of queer is, in this sense, transitive. It's multiply transitive. And she says, the immemorial current that queer represents is as anti-separatist as it is anti-assimilationist. So again, there's this emphasis on the across, the transitive, uh, but she's talking about an immemorial current. And of course, veer is often a nautical term, so to do with the sea and uh, so on. And then finally, uh, this from the same text by Sedgwick uh, in Tendencies, she says that queer is relational and it is strange. And the exact quote is, keenly, it is relational and it is strange. So there's this sort of strangeness to queerness, um, which I think is also akin to the strangeness or uncanniness of veer, veerness, if one wants to say there is such, such a thing as veerness. Now, Jonathan Goldberg has written of the importance of thinking beyond 
So here's another preposition, beyond paradigms of self-identical identity. And he argues instead that we should pursue strange conjunctions, so the and, the and, and. Um, so it will be this multiply transitive plural lines of communication or plural uh, lines of cross-identification, which would move across genders, across sexualities, across genres, across history, and so on. So queer, for Sedgwick and for Goldberg, uh, is interrogating its own spatializing and temporalizing metaphors. So it's a site of movement and transitivity, and it's shift away and another sort of preposition, uh, shift away from static accounts of identity. Um, so you have all these deviations from the sort of static or hegemonic accounts, but you also have reversings. Um, Foucault's reverse discourse, for example, uh, or overturnings. Um, and we'll see that veer, queer, and turning are intimately related to one another. Nicholas Royal, in his book, Veering, A Theory of Literature, says that veering is kinetic and dynamic, mobile. It opens up new possibilities for responding to what is on the move and uncertain in the very moment of reading, to what is slippery. So there's an emphasis in Royal's book, Veering, on this sort of unpredictability or chanciness that we talked about um, when we looked at Butler and Foucault in the last couple of days. So the work of veering would be quite similar for Royal uh, as the work of queering, uh, because veering is twisting, or it's a perversion. Uh, so it's a perverse act, but it's also a perverse art. <coughs> there's an aesthetics of veering, just as much as there's an aesthetics of queering. Um, so if there were to be such a such a thing as a veer theory, as I'm suggesting, it would, uh, it would be marked by these kinds of aesthetical, ontological, uh, and theoretical shifts, turns, surprises, and twists. And it would also involve what Royal calls an economy of desire. And he explains what he means by this, how veering involves this economy of desire. He says that everybody veers in his or her own fashion. But this is not, not, never simply a matter of choice, volition, or personal preferences. There's always something other about veering. Veering offers fresh slants on the classical notion of clinimen. Clinimen from Lucretius meaning leaning or inclination as a basis for thinking about the strangeness of life and the singularity of being in the world. And I'll say a bit more in a moment what I mean about the strangeness of life and the singularity of being in the world as connected to veering. Veering is, Royal says, not human or not only human. And we know that other animals veer, um, for example, horses. You know, crows veer. Um, you could go through a whole bestiary of animals who, which veer. Uh, objects also veer, uh, such as stars, for example. Uh, so we might think of the word astral as being in some sense 
related to the word astray. But also the idea of the astral, as we know from sort of recent cosmological theory, um, is tells us something about our connectedness to the world in that we, our bodies are made up of atoms from stars which uh, exploded millions of years ago. Uh, so there's a sort of cosmic being um, which um, is a Veer theory. So the theory of Veering is non-anthropocentric because it, it takes us away from this supposition uh, or entrenched position that we as human animals are at the centre of our environment. Now, as we'll see in a moment, the word environment has veering at its very heart because the French verb virer, which means to turn, is inscribed in the word environment. Um, and one could also, and I've just thought of it now, one could do a queer twist, another queer twist on the word environment because vir in Latin means male. So it's to do with the masculine. Uh, so you'd want to say that there's a sort of, uh, I suppose, entrenched or buried masculinism in environmentalism or environmental theory that a veer theory or a queer theory would want to push, push against or at least question. Uh, so veering or queering or queering as veering would reorient us or orient us toward uh, a new or different understanding of the environment, which I would argue is quite crucial, at least in our uh, present uh, conjuncture because of critical climate change, for example. Um, so I want to say a bit about um, Judah Butler and environmentalism and the environment because um, there's a in her recent work there's been a, a sort of shift uh, away from seeing the human as being uh, the only um, vulnerable subject in the world um, so vulnerability is no longer prefixed by the human in her work. Uh, so there's more of an emphasis on life as vulnerable. Okay, so she's emphasizing um, the ways in which our livability or our survivability uh, is dependent upon non-human others, but also objects and technology. Um, so there's an originary uh, soma technicity in the sense that soma, the body, and the technical are somehow enmeshed. Butler has, says that, has said that critique of, critiques of anthropocentrism have made clear that when we speak about human life, we are indexing a being who is at once human and living, and that the range of living beings exceeds the human. Exceeds the human. In a way, the term human life designates an unwieldy combination since human does not simply qualify life, but life relates human to what is non human and living, establishing the human in the midst of this relationality. And this paradox makes it imperative to separate 
the question of a livable life from the status of a human life, since livability pertains to living beings that exceed the human. So she's emphasized there that living being exceeds the human. In addition, we would be foolish to think that life is fully possible without a dependence on technology, which suggests that the animal, or suggests that the human in its animality is dependent on technology to live. In this sense, we are thinking within the frame of the cyborg, as we call into question the status of the human and that of livable life. So, what Butler is emphasizing here is a sort of shared cohabitation in the world. Um, so there are shared bonds of connectedness and shared bonds of solidarity between us, humans, and animals, but also other non-human objects, which, as she said in her lecture here in Dublin last week, um, create networks of uh, support for us. So, there's an increasing emphasis on environment and weather and climate in her work. And she says that bonds of solidarity emerge across space and time uh, so that there's this sort of global form uh, of ethical recognition and connection. I would go even further than Butler and say it's, like it's, it's a planetary form of ethical recognition and connection. Um, she's drawing particularly on Arana, Hannah Arendt here uh, and she's saying that the unchosen character of earthly cohabitation is for our rent the condition of our very existence as ethical and political beings. And resulting from this is a critical insight. And she says, the way I read this, every inhabitant who belongs to a community belongs also to the earth. And this implies a commitment not only to every other inhabitant of the earth, but we can surely add to sustaining the earth itself. And with this last proviso, I seek to offer an ecological supplement to Arendt's anthropocentrism. So this ecological supplement uh, suggests that um, Butler is advocating for a sort of eco-ontology which uh, isn't simply reducible to human bodily or human life or human bodies. Um, she says, in my view, ethical claims emerge from bodily life itself, a, body, a bodily life that is not always unambiguously human. After all, the life that is worth preserving and safeguarding, which should be protected from murder in Levinas and genocide in Arendt, is connected to and dependent upon non-human life in essential ways. And this follows from the idea of the human animal, a different point of departure different point of departure for thinking about politics. So here she's talking about the sort of connectedness between the human and the non-human world, but she's using the same term as she used in my first epigraph, point of departure. And she says, if we try to think in concrete terms what it means to commit ourselves to preserving the life of the other, we are invariably confronted with the bodily conditions of life, and so a commitment not only to the other's corporeal persistence, but all those environmental conditions that make life livable. So there's a subtle shift, but it's a critical shift in Butler's thinking there from thinking about humanism to think about precarity. And it's not just human precarity, it's the precariousness of all life, um, of all matter. And she says, my point is not to rehabilitate humanism, but rather to struggle for a conception of ethical obligation that is grounded in precarity. 
No one escapes the precarious dimension of social life. It is, we might say, our common non-foundation. And we cannot understand cohabitation without understanding that a generalized precarity obligates us to oppose genocide and to sustain life on egalitarian terms. Our thinking gets nowhere, nowhere without the presupposition of the inter interdependent and sustaining conditions of life. Of course, we have to be aware and sensitive to the ways in which these ties of interdependency and cohabitation also have a capacity to veer and that they might work against us. Um, that there are ways in which our networks of sustenance uh, can also be unsustaining. You know, a tsunami, for example, or an electrical storm. Uh, so there are ways in which uh, the non-human world impedes us. And she says, over and against these instances of cohabitation, there are as we know, antagonistic ties, wretched bonds, raging and mournful no modes of connectedness. So even though there's this sort of shared connectedness to the world, uh, the world can also have an antagonistic or aggressive even relationship to us. So, we need to ask under what conditions it occur, occurs that some lives become livable or, or unlivable, grievable or ungrievable, damaged, disposable, injurable, uh, or non-lives. And why those lives in particular? Because there's something irreducibly physical and phenomenal about fearing. This is why we must ask these questions. And Butler notes that, of course, this discussion brings us to another question. Are we speaking only about human bodies? And can we speak about bodies at all without the environments, the machines, and the complex systems of social interdependency upon which they rely, all of which forms the conditions of their existence and survival? So the overarching demand for this politics, she's saying we must depart for must be precisely for a livable life, and that would be any life, all life, um, a life that can be lived. And I think she makes a crucial point here. She says, how then do we, th do we think about a livable life without positing a single or uniform ideal for that life? It is not a matter, in my view, of finding out what the human really is or should be, since it has surely been made plain that humans are animals too, and that their very bodily existence depends upon systems of support that are both human and non-human. So to a certain extent, I follow Haraway in asking us to think about the complex relationalities that constitute bodily life, and to suggest that we do not need any more ideal forms of the human. Rather, we need to understand and attend to the complex set of relations without which we do not exist at all. So there's this stubbornly physical quality to um, veering is, and to queering. Um, but it's also what allows us to, to live and survive. Um, indeed, one of the motivations for this course is uh, the fact that queer has always been pronounced dead and yet it has this stubborn vitality. Um, 
Cedric says, in the quick change American marketplace of images, maybe the queer moment, if it's here today, will for that very reason be gone tomorrow. But many of us feel the need to make cumulatively, stubbornly, a counterclaim against that obsolescence, a claim that something about queer is inextinguishable. So, this idea that queer is inextinguishable is a stubborn counterclaim against the idea that queer is over. So I think that's a kind of veer uh, narrative. Okay, so the word veering is interesting, although it's, it's not going to be the only word I want to focus on here. Um, veer is a word we don't use very much in our everyday language. Um, it's one you don't find very often in, in literature, uh, but perhaps it's idiosync idiosyncratic quality is what draws us towards it, um, draws us into its orbit. Um, so queerness for me is kind of pivotal, which is another veer word, pivotal for thinking about queer theory. Um, veering is a present participle, but it's also a noun. Now as a present participle, it means changing course or direction, which we've already seen in Butler, turning around, revolting, so revolution would be in this um, sort of shared lexicon. Revolting, revolving, or in a figurative sense, vacillating, variable, or changeful. As a noun, veering refers to the action or fact of changing course or direction. So veering is an old word, uh, obscure in its origins, but uh, as we saw, it's correct. It's connected to this French word vire, which means to turn or turn around. So it's very much bound up with the environment because this French word vera is, is at its heart. Um, now I've already mentioned why it's important for us to think about environmental degradation and critical climate change um, and not to um, not to ignore uh, the sort of complex set of interrelations or enmeshments between uh, humans and the non-human world. Um, and that sort of significance is something I've already mentioned uh, is being tracked. Tracked might be another veer word, actually, because it would be related to trace, which would be related to betray, um, which would be veering. Um, in Eve Sedgwick's work, there's also this emphasis, especially at the end, on the environment and the weather and climate. And in an essay that, an essay that uh, Judah Butler wrote for Sedgwick posthumously called Proust at the End, it's, it's a sort of mourning essay for Barbara Johnson and Eve Sedgwick. She's very much attentive to um, climate change. In fact, the essay begins with, with this line. It's, Beautiful line. A change in weather is sufficient to recreate the world and ourselves. Beautiful. A change in weather is sufficient to recreate the world and ourselves. So there's the changefulness uh, that is one meaning of veering. 
And again, again, there's this emphasis on uh, sort of shared sustenance between the human and the non-human environment. Um, and she talks very much about how air, which is often forgotten in philosophical discourse, but how air is fundamental uh, for our uh, livability. I mean, it's startlingly axiomatic, of course. We need air to breathe and to live. Uh, but breathing requires a conducive world. Uh, so uh, in order to breathe, we're bound to our environment. We're bound to shifts in climate. And we're bound um, to shifts in climate which have a, a consequence on our survivability. So in this late essay of Sedgwick's called The Weather in Proust, there's a different modality of desire, which is the veering as desire uh, Royal is talking about. Um, and this desire is to seek what is adequate for our survival. So it forms itself around the very material and ecological conditions of support, sustenance and persistence. This is what Butler was talking about last week, about material conditions of sustenance, replenishment, sus uh, and support, and persistence. So these conditions of support, sustenance, and persistence would, of course, be precarious. Um, because, as Butler says, forms of cohabitation are, characteri are characterized um, by equality and minimized precarity that become the goal to be achieved by any struggle against subjugation and exploitation, but also the goals that start to be achieved in the practices of alliance that assemble across distances to achieve those very goals. We struggle in, from, and against. Three prepositions there. We struggle in, from, and against precarity. Thus, it is not from pervasive love for humanity or a pure desire for peace that we strive to live together. We live together because we have no choice, and yet we must struggle to affirm the ultimate value of that unchosen social world. And that struggle makes itself known and felt precisely when we exercise freedom in a way that is necessarily committed to the equal value of lives. We can be alive or dead to the suffering of others. They can be dead or alive to us depending on how they appear and whether they appear at all. But only when we understand that what happens, there also happens here, and that here is already and elsewhere, and necessarily so, that we stand a chance of grasping the difficult and shifting global connections in which we live, which makes our lives possible, and sometimes too often, impossible. So there's this unchosenness to our uh, our social world, and Cedric is also attentive uh, to this, uh, that we must necessarily choose, or nevertheless choose, even if there is this unchosen, uh, because it's not only a shifting and remarkable world outside oneself, but one is, in spite of oneself, still open to it, and must be in order to survive. So there's this kind of ontological sympathy with the world. Um, and Jane Bennett calls this enchantment. Um, and she gives a wonderful image of this, which is uh, when a, a plant is underneath a sort of concrete overpass, but it bends out in order to get the sun. 
so ontosympathy, the sort of ontological sympathy between uh, the human world and its environment and the non-human world and its environment is a kind of veering or twisting. Which can be quite uncanny in many ways. So when we say about leaving ourselves open or choosing uh, uh, nature and in our, nat our connectedness to nature, our connectedness to the environment, um, in this sort of way of uh, imagining things, uh, where nature is personified as giving consent to us, but we're also giving consent to it. Um, and it's not necessarily in a legal or contractual sense, uh, because there's no speech act. There's nothing performative going on here. Uh, we don't articulate this idea of giving consent. Um, it's a generosity without articulation that the environment gives itself or lends itself um, to be used by us. Um, but it trusts that we will uh, use it responsibly and responsively, um, but also trust that even though our survival depends on it, it trusts to us that it will survive its having been used by us. So there's a sort of twisting or turnabout or a pivot that's going on there uh, on this veering of and in the, the environment. Uh, so above all, this theory of veering um, that I'm talking about in, in environmental terms is about an interrogation or a displacement of thinking the environment uh, specifically in anthropocentric terms or thinking about specifically in terms of the world or the environment as being for us. Um, because if an environment environs or surrounds, it doesn't merely environ us, the human. Uh, we're not, contrary to what we think, the centre of the world. So veering involves contemplating all sorts of turns, uh, funny uh, and otherwise, uh, but it's not confined uh, simply to um, us, the human, um, because under the meaning of the verb to veer, as to turn around or about or to change from one direction or course to another. The, the Oxford English Dictionary actually first gives the case of, of veering in terms of things and then secondly in terms of persons and animals. Actually it says persons or animals but I've written down persons and animals because it must be connected. The or is the separation we're arguing against. Under this latter heading of uh, persons and animals, it gives particular instances of horses veering. So even the dictionary, before it talks about humans, has talked about things and horses veering. So veering is what living creatures do, and that is human or otherwise. So it's physical. It involves a moving body or force. Now that can be a star, but it also can be veering in the psychological context. Uh, in the sense of someone veering away from, as Butler was talking about in terms of political projects, uh, veering away from a goal or an aspiration, or veering or vacillating between one thing and another. 
it can be deliberate, uh, that is in willed, or it can be unwilled, unintentional. Uh, and we'll talk about drones tomorrow. And uh, drones veer all the time, whether that's willed by the humans controlling them or by the drones themselves or not. So either way, whether it's intentional or not, there's a suggestion of something sudden or unpredictable or unexpected. Um, now, veering as movement, it doesn't necessarily depend on a logic of origin or destination, beginning or end. Um, so it's non-teleological. It perverts a kind of teleological uh, sequential logic. This, this is from Sedgwick again. She says, the query is a continuing moment, movement, motive. It's recurrent, eddying, troublant. Now, troublant, as far as I know, is a word she's made up. Uh, but it's a wonderful word because it's, it, it's definitely a veer word. Uh, it's to refer to this like immemorial current that I mentioned earlier. Um, and she says, the word itself means across. It comes from the Indo-European root twerke, which also yields the German quer, transverse, the Latin torquere, to twist, and the English a tort. So, so many veer words there. Across, uh, transverse, twist, a tort. Of course, the root that the word queer comes from is twerk, T-W-E-R-K-W. Okay, this may be just a coincidence, but Miley Cyrus, of course, has become the queen of twerking, and Eve Sedgwick is the queen of uh, queering. And there's one way in which we could look at Miley Cyrus's uh, performances or her persona um, and her political expression as, in some sense, a meaningful kind of queer or veer critique. Um, is Cyrus, uh, I saw yesterday, she's one of her videos, um, I don't remember her name, but has been shown in the New York Porn Film Festival. Uh, so on the one hand, people see, and this is queer in its own way, that she draws on the silly, the vacuous, the marginal, uh, the childish, uh, the outlandish. Um, but on the other hand, um, she's engaged in a sort of um, deep-seated critique of contemporary gender and sexuality politics. Um, now, I think it's not just serendipity although veering is always serendipitous in that unpredictable way. Uh, and it's not just trivial that there's this connection between twerk, uh, the root of queer, and twerking, which Cyrus has become fa famous for. Uh, because there's something transitive about the way Miley Cyrus enacts a certain form of queerness. Um, now, she could, of course, get recuperated for hegemonic normative discourses uh, and recuperated by phallocentric logics of all kinds. Uh, but she still makes trouble, she's still troublant uh, for regimes of normality, gender and sexuality. 
because she refuses to line up neatly her gender, her sexuality, her anatomy. For example, in her videos, her biological sex doesn't always or necessarily line up with her gender, the traits of her personality and appearance, which of course are supposed to be the same as her biological sex. The gender assignments of her preferred partners are not always as they are supposed to be opposite. Uh, her seeming refusal to self-identify as gay or straight. Her preferred sexual acts are not insertive, but intensely marked by autoerotic pleasures. And her, her most eroticized sexual organs are not necessarily genital, usually the tongue, for example, with Miley Cyrus, or procreative. And her sexual fantasies don't necessarily match up with her sexual practice. If anybody is connected with objects, it's Miley Cyrus, because she sees the sex appeal of inorganic objects like sledgehammers. And her enjoyment of power is, is supposed to be low, uh, but in her case, it's pretty high. Another word for veering would be going gaga. So we've had Miley Cyrus, now we're going to have Lady Gaga. Judith Jack Halberstam has recently written a book called Gaga Feminism, which sees Lady Gaga as celebrating a new gender politics, using fashion and gender ambiguity to craft multiple and shifting messages, multiple and shifting, two veer words, about identity, sexuality, gender, race, class, and the human. Gaga's queerness, as Halberstam sees it, performs a very particular arrangement of bodies, genders, desires, communications, race, affect, Gaga feminism is an erotics of the surface. It's an erotics of flaws and flows. And it's invested in a gender politics which is responsive to the crises in gender and sexuality in our current moment. So Gaga feminism is anti-assimilationist in the sense that Sedgwick talked about that we mentioned. Uh, Gaga feminism is marked by innovative deployments of femininity, excess, embrace of loss of control, and loss of control is veering, right? And a maverick sense of bodily identity. And Halberstam labels this as a punk aesthetics, but what I like about it is she calls it a wild feminism. And that seems to me to be veering as feminism, a practice of going gaga. Um, and it's queer because it's undefinable, because it holds out for a future or to a future rather than prescribing one, opening up possibilities rather than naming them. So it gestures towards new forms of revolt, another fear word. So there's something about veering in the gaga sense, which is uncertainly perverse. Uh, it's an unfinished movement in the present. So veering entails an experience or an event of difference uh, of a sort of untapped or unpredictable energy. One can veer back, one can veer around, one can veer down, one can veer up, one can veer towards, one can veer about, one can veer over, one can veer away, one can veer off. So veering can go pretty much anywhere. So in order to investigate it, we must be prepared to shift because there's no single or self-contained language for veering. It's always already adrift or drifting. And it's related to other words 
verse, virgin, subvert, pervert, avert, vertigo, to turn, to incline, to lean, to swerve, to twist, to tilt, to diverge, to deviate, to detour, to digress, to zigzag. Swerve is the one I want to talk about a bit now. Leo Bersani, I think, is the ultimate veer theorist. And all of his essays start with sort of hand grenades lobbed into the essay. And is the rectum a grave, which is his most famous essay, which already has you grabbed at the title, I reckon, is the rectum a grave. It opens with this line about aversion, which is a veer word. It says, there's a big secret about sex. Most people don't like it. And you're dying to find out why. I'm just going to talk about his queer methodology, though. <laughs> You'll have to read the essay to find out the answer. In The Culture of Redemption, Bersani describes his methodology by calling it a lateral mobility. Now, lateral is another veer word. Lateral being a shift out, like the rhizome we talked about, to elsewhere. So it's a movement to the side of objects. And he calls this specifically an, ethic, an, an ethical motivation to move to the side of objects. Or it, it's an orientation. An orientation to orient is another fair word. He says, our attention can and should be mobile. So there's both an emphasis on reading or queer reading as an attention, but also an inattentiveness. Uh, I love the example from Stephen Connor's book, Paraphernalia where he's talking about the magical uh, qualities of things. He says the reason he, he wrote the book was he was in Dublin airport and he saw a little child pulling on the string or on the strap of its mother's bag and uh, how transfixed and rhapsodic its attention was to the object. Uh, but what one learns from children is that objects are and I'm including the mother as an object there. Objects are sort of non-monogamous non or promiscuous attachments for children, okay? Because the child will just move on, on to the next thing which is going to satisfy it. So fearing, in, in a sense, is this kind of non-monogamous, promiscuous swerving. In his essay, The Other Freud, Bersani writes that we have a natural tendency to swerve so a natural tendency to swerve, that would seem oxymoronic. How can one have a natural tendency to swerve? Again, in forms of violence, he says, we have been educated to feel uneasy about our perceptual and affective mobility. So veering is also this uneasiness. And if one looks up the etymology of queer, you'll find that queasy and queer also share an etymological link. Um, and that which makes us queasy uh, Fearing, for instance, will give you the sense of vertigo. Now, the sources for uh, this ethics of swerving that finds in Bersani are, as you would imagine, also quite mobile. Uh, he takes it from Proust's digressive onto aesthetics. Proust says that he advances by digression, inclining first in one direction, then in the other. Uh, he also takes from Baudelaire's opposition to the tyrannical system of straight lines. 
we'll talk about the tyrannical system of straight lines in a moment. Also from the psychoanalyst Jean Laplanche, who detects in Freud a theory of becoming human as a process of foirevoiement, foirevoiement, and voie, which means street or way is a word I want to talk about in a minute. So becoming human is a process of going astray. So digression is actually a constitutive step on the way to becoming a human being. So there's a, a perversion already in the career of becoming human. Of course, to career would be another veer word, right? Uh, or to careen would be another one. Uh, Bersani proposes that becoming human begins not as Lacan would have it in aggressivity, but rather in digressivity, uh, as the allure of new objects convinces us to, to drop or to abandon the previous attachments we had. And Bersani calls this an ontological floating. So he says that unlike others before him who had merely known that desire can swerve from the object to which presumably it is naturally attached, Freud insisted on the intrinsically free-floating nature of desire. It is available to any object and must be trained to focus on the object proper or the proper object. So even Freud is saying that we have to train our focus on the proper object, that our capacity is to veer. So from his earliest work onward, Bersani's methodology exemplifies this form of digressiveness, disinterestedness, or promiscuous reading. So rather than a sort of orthopedic reading practice, which would try to straighten out, he has this uh, critical method or critical mode of experimentation as what he calls a circular mobility. Uh, his method of reading cuts a swerving path he says in A Future of Astinax about his own thought that it is rather ambivalently moving toward and moving around its objects. So amb ambivalence is another fair word. Ambivalently moving toward and moving around its objects as a non-exegetical mobility around, toward, and away from texts. So there's this kind of errancy uh, or swerving which characterizes uh, queerness. On one reading of Bersani, Miko Tukunen says that as opposed to criticism aiming at the annihilating elucidation of the object, what we have here is the kind of tortuous, it's also related to queer, a kind of tortuous movement that the term queer's etymology from the Latin torquere suggests, a digressive transversal dance of desire that is not impelled by the need to assimilate an established choreography, but moves for the mere pleasure of soliciting company, of crossing a line the ethics of swerving gives us a readerly method of both ready distraction and inappropriately intense, intense concentration. So choreography would be another veer word, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, and also crossing lines as this sort of ethical swerving path. Now the swerving movement of this non-alliative non-annihilative desire reformulates the subject's relation to otherness in terms of what Bersani calls sociability. So his writings on sexuality and ethics advanced this erotic ethics, which is similar to Butler and um, Sedgwick in relation to the environment, in that he doesn't seek to exterminate difference or to ignore the, the intractable differences uh, between the human and non-human. He sees very much this cosmic being. Um, 
So there's a sort of connectedness between human and world, which he calls an impersonal aesthetic. And the subject's need to, to project himself onto the world or herself onto the world is not entirely necessary. He says, we correspond to the world in ways that don't necessitate or imply the world's suppression. So this is what he calls ontological passivity or ontological floating. And floating, as I said, is a kind of veering uh, because it's simply letting the world be or as both Cedric and Butler said, are, it's a receptivity to the world, which means that ontologically the world cares for us or not, uh, just as we care for the world or not. Now, desire, as we've already seen, is a veering thing. Uh, veering is in intricately entwined with the emergence and history of what we call queer, uh, because however way you might want to think about veering, is not straight, because to focus on veering is to engage with uh, unexpected or unheard of orientations. Now, Sarah Ahmed in her book, Queer Orientations, uh, says that to queer phenomenology is to offer a different slant to the concept of orientation itself. We'll come back to that. But I want to focus a little bit on what Bersani is saying about sociability as veering. Uh, the example he gives is uh, from a Romer film where there's two women talking on a bench and they move closer and closer together until eventually they, they uh, put an arm around each other. Uh, it's in this sort of closeness or their bodies coming together um, that he looks for this attentiveness for our attentiveness for a non-sexual intimacy. Uh, a new relational mold that we were talking about yesterday, which would be a sort of non-sexual form of connectedness. Uh, so it would be sensual, but it wouldn't be necessarily sexual. So this appeal of uh, veering as a way of talking about digression, deviation, divagation, has to do with this sense of ongoing movement, um, of this uncertainty of and in the present. Um, or the now, which this whole course is putting into question. Um, now, the more traditional and familiar language of digression or change of direction, um, as Royal says, is, uh, is moving against a kind of stilling or fixing or anesthetizing of precisely what is exciting, seductive, and even dangerous. Um, and seduction is a, is a veer word. The wavering, unfinished character of the present participle veering is something that we might think of as vertiginous. And vertiginous, vertigo are, are veer words. Um, thing which is suggestive of veering is not just sexual orientation, which of course is already uh, suggestive, um, but something else which is wavering choreographic uh, and varying a sexual difference. Um, and Derrida has an essay called Choreographies, which is precisely about this question of se sexual difference. Um, and choreography connotes both this sort of mobility and instability, a carrying away, a moving, a deporting, a displacing, a drifting. Um, so sexual difference itself is always a sort of differing and deferring, uh, a dissemination. So sexual difference or sexual differences are always veering. Um, and one way in which Derrida signals sexual difference in his work is by using multiple voices. Uh, and voices veer. 
uh, in this kind of polyvocality. He says that right from the start, there are several voices in his work. He says, there are, these are texts where not only a multiplicity of voices is dictated to me, but I orient it willfully, deliberately, toward a political critique, a politico-philosophical protest against misogyny, machismo, or phallocentrism, which I've been trying to theorize since forever, long before this. And then even before these voices sexualize themselves in some way, before they take the mark of this or that sex, of he or she, one doesn't really know if it is he or she, who is he or who is she. But even before this multiplicity of voices is sexualized, I've also undergone the necessity of writing several texts at once with several hands at once to set on the page several pages at once in the same space. And there it was not a matter of sexual difference, but only of differences of voices, differences of discourse, discourses that are simultaneous, set on the page, responding to each other without responding to each other, but that are there to be read together. There to be read together, just as veering and queering are there to be read together. They're already ambient, another veer word, um, to each other. So veering or to veer is to kind of seduce or to lead astray. Um, but we allow it. We allow ourselves to be seduced. Uh, it's a kind of love story between uh, ourselves and veering. Uh, another veer word is rogue. And Derrida has a, has a book called Rogues. And this is how he describes the rogue. He says, a rogue is a roué, a delinquent, a little rascal, or in French it's voyeur. Uh, the original meaning of the word rogue uh, is debauchery. So there's this kind of freewheeling orbit around being debauched, uh, sexually licentious, uh, but also kind of revolting against work and labor. Uh, interrupting uh, work. So there's a certain work, worklessness um, in this sort of lustful, shameless, uh, licentious, dissolute, lewd, libertine kind of quality. Uh, so the, the rogue is never far from scenes of sexual difference or sexual seduction. Uh, and Seduction or debauchery is, of course, a kind of leading astray because to seduce means to lead one off the correct path, the right path, the normal path, the straight path. Um, so the, the, the rogue is always devoye, one who is led astray. Now, where do we find the rogue? Always we find the rogue on the street, leading astray. Now, there's no actual etymological relationship between rogue uh, and rue, um, and rue, which is the, the French for street. Uh, but the voyeur is, seems to be quite close to the French word voie, which is for road um, or path. But the, the rogue is always defined in relation to a normal path, to good conduct, to the right way. Um, so he always degenerates or disorders this idea of um, being on the, on the right path. Um, so there's always a sort of proximity between the rogue and bad citizenship 
or not being a good citizen. So the rogue is always true blanc, always causing trouble, always ambivalent. Which brings up the question of democracy. The rogue would always be excluded from democracy, from the demos, uh, because he or she would always be beyond the right thinking or the calculating juridical or the moral order. Of course, we know the word rogue state. Uh, on the other hand, the rogue is never that far from a kind of democracy, uh, a radical democracy that we talked about, uh, because he or she is unoccupied, workless, unemployed, always occupying the streets, but either by doing nothing or by doing what is not supposed to be done. So he or she is always veering in relation to the law in relation to established norms, in relation to the police order. Uh, so there's a kind of voyocratic or rogue democracy, uh, rogue democratic order, which would be illegal outlaw, um, querying the relationship to power. It would be uh, a sort of transgression, a transgression of the law uh, or a transgression of the street. So a counter sovereignty. And the rogue, or the voyo, uh, shares a number of veer words. He's, he's a rascal, a hellion, a playboy, a good-for-nothing, a ruffian, a villain, a crook, a thug, a gangster, a shyster, a scoundrel, a miscreant, a hooligan, a gangbanger, a suburban punk, a pariah, an outlaw. So he or she is always unoccupied, unemployed, always roaming around, doing nothing, loitering, doing what is not supposed to be done, that is according to what society can tolerate or cannot tolerate. The rogue can actually also be a plant or an animal. Uh, so a plant or an animal who, who veers. Um, now to come back to the question of desire, we said there's no desire without veering, uh, but there's also no orgasm or jouissance without veering. Okay, because the idea of the, the petty more, the little debt, uh, intimates a loss of control, a loss of self, which Brassani calls self-shattering. So the self is always, or the self-identical is always shattered at the moment of orgasm. So orgasm is, it, orgasming is a kind of veering. Okay, so queering and perversity, or veering and perversity, uh, Sarah May, as I, as I mentioned, uh, says that perversity risks a certain departure from the straight and narrow, which would make new futures possible. This is what Derrida means by the rogue and counter-sovereignty, that the going astray or getting lost is a sort of becoming queer. Uh, and such straying doesn't just happen on the street or during the day. It happens also at night in our dreams, uh, in uh, forgetfulness, in slips of the tongue, in parapraxies, uh, in moments of misreading, for example, uh, or free association. Free association is this sort of permanently distracted uh, form of um, form of communicating, but also uh, free association is swerves to the side of its actual object. Um, and Freud actually calls that drifting. 
and Laplanche calls it free floating or hovering attention. Uh, so there's something about um, the unconscious which is perpetually on the move or swept along by these sort of energies of reversal and displacement uh, or deviations and substitutions, sublimations, which are again kind of works of veering or unbalancing. Um, pervertibilities of words uh, or perversions of words uh, which open up new sorts of spaces and new sorts of um, directions in which veering can go. So the directions in which veering can go um, are in the direction of love and desire. It intimates alluring. Uh, in love, when we love, we are always veering. Uh, also in imagination, it's a force which comes to the side of things, athwart, as Cedric would say. Uh, it's disjunctive, irrepressible, unpredictable, uh, fanciful, inventive. Veer, veering is always in the direction of otherness. It's always an acknowledgement of something other, something strange, which is either in or to the self. But also, it's uncanny because it makes the familiar strange and the strange familiar. The uncanny is queer and the queer is uncanny. So there's something unsettling and haunting about uh, veering. Um, if you think about it in po poetic terms, uh, a figure for veering would be enjambment or line, line breaks, which uh, break with the conventionality of the, of the line. Judith Butler, uh, in her most recent work on vulnerability and resistance, when she talks about this dual idea of performativity, it's interesting that she says, and these are precisely her words, she says, a speech act can veer away from its apparent aim so this is the idea, as we talked about, performativity, citationality, and reiterability. And this veering is a deviation, which is queer. Uh, so this dual notion, and what she means is there's a deviation from gendered norms. So there's a swerve taken by iterability. And then there are norms acting on us in a field of unwilled receptivity or susceptibility or injability, injurability. And the precise term she uses is agentic swerves. So one tries to find a queer way uh, and become a queer agent. Uh, fearing is also, as I mentioned, a kind of loitering. Uh, and Ross Chambers has a wonderful coinage, which is loitrature. And loitrature is literature which goes precisely nowhere. Um, kind of has a kind of worklessness. Heart of Darkness would be a wonderful example. Uh, but veering is also flirting. In his book, Between You and Me, Gavin Butt uh, says that flirting could be considered as a kind of queer methodology in its own right. Adam Phillips, in his book on flirtation, has suggested that even though flirtation is often taken as the malign double of things done properly, as the unserious and inappropriate act of desire which eschews lasting commitment and love, it might, when viewed from an alternative vantage point, be taken as a different kind of relation, another way of going about things. Flirtation, then, may be taken as offering up a specifically queer methodology because of its particular relation to the serious. And he concludes by saying, that's flirtation for you. One never knows for sure where it's, where, whether it's the beginning of something or not, or where, if indeed anywhere, it's going to go. 
A great example of this is Melville's Bartleby discriminator, who says, I would prefer not to. He prefers not to go anywhere. Um, uh, the word queer is used in that text uh, only once, I think. In a reading of Bartleby, Derrida says, like, Bartleby Discriminator doesn't make a single allusion to anything feminine whatsoever, and that is all the more the case for anything that could be construed as a figure of woman. And this is undoubtedly true, but the apparent absence of female characters uh, is obvious, but things are less certain, <clears throat> because the lawyer says at one point, it was Bartleby's wonderful mildness chiefly, which not only disarmed me, but unmanned me, as it were. So unmanning is an indicator of of queerness or veering um, in Melville's text. Prefer could be a kind of veer word or a queer word uh, because it's a kind of twisting uh, or turning of a preference for preferring. So queer reading is a kind of thwarting of meaning um, or a turning or twisting of meaning. We often talk about a twist at the end of a text. Um, so queer reading often functions through operations such as turning, twisting, or flipping. Um, and Butler, as we, as we know, says if, if the queer is to have a future, then it must be redeployed and twisted each time or every time that it's used. Uh, there's a, a book written on, written on queer straight desire, which is called Straight with a Twist by Calvin Thomas, and he says that the twist has a spontaneous ability to reclaim and re remobilize all forms of plot, perspective, and history by force, collusion, or contamination of a contingent outside. Sexual difference, as I said, is a kind of choreography, and we're not sure what um, the miscegenations between genders may bring. Sexual difference is always to come, in the sense uh, of its unknowability in advance. Sexual difference is interesting precisely because of its unknowability, its riskiness, uh, and its chance. Uh, we might think of uh, sexual identities that we do know, however, like bisexuality, which is a bisection of a line, uh, intersex, which is always acting in the middle, transgender or transsexual, which is either arguing for a transitivity in terms of transgender or a moving towards stability in terms of transsexuality. Syntax, of course, also veers. We might think of the erotics of the line, uh, the, the lines of poetry or the lines of writing as, in a sense, a kind of adhesiveness or the way in which words stick together or kiss almost. Perverse readings go against, as I said, orthodox or orthopedic readings, those which would straighten out. Um, so they're wayward, they're turned away from what is good, right or proper. So the queer disorients or disorientates uh, and the perverted is that which goes astray or turns astray or moves us off the straight line. Ahmed says that the straight line would be that which moves without any deviation toward the point of heterosexual union or sexual coupling. Uh, which come back to your question from yesterday. She says that any acts that postpone the heterosexual union are perverse, which thus includes heterosexual practices that are not aimed 
toward penetration by the vagina, uh, of the vagina by the penis. The postponement or delay threatens the, the line of heterosexuality insofar as it risks uncoupling desire and reproduction. So she calls this, these kinds of unstraight lines wonky. Um, it will be a bit like the way the word failure appears on the cover of Judith Halberstam's book, The Queer Art of Failure, is wonky, which is it's, uh, descending. Uh, so there's a sort of queer inclination to failure also, uh, and stupidity and forgetting, and so on. Um, so I just want to end now with a, a sort of figure for the V of veering, which would be uh, an image which I take from Bersani's Is the Rectum a Grave essay. And he says there's uh, something infinitely seductive, which is a veer word, and intolerable about the image of a grown man with his legs high in the air, refusing the suicidal ecstasy of being a woman. Okay, that's it.